Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Luke. We're returning to our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke today. We're in chapter 7. It's been several months since we finished chapter 6. Now, with that said, let's uh, come to Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Speaking of Jesus, Luke writes, When he had completed all of his discourse, by the way, that's the Sermon on the Mount. We studied the Sermon on the Mount there in the last uh, few chapters. And now once that's completed, he completed his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been, who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. And the Lord had his blessing to the reading of his word. Now you know the Gospel of Luke, of course, was written by Luke, who was a physician by trade, but he was also a historian. God used Luke to write the history of the earliest days of the church in a letter that we call the book of Acts. Much of the Gospel of Luke, like Acts, is historical narrative. And this particular narrative is really part one of Acts. It's the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. Each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a unique perspective on the same truths. Luke wrote his gospel and addressed it to one singular person, a man with a Greek name named Theopolis. And having a Greek name, we believe that he must have been a Gentile. And so it would have been of great interest, this particular passage that I just read to Theopolis, because it speaks of another Gentile, this centurion. Now, the nation of Israel, as you know, is geographically situated hard against the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And ancient Israel lied between some of the world's most powerful empires, the Egyptians to the southwest, the Babylonians to the east, the Assyrians to the north and east. And through the centuries, they battled these empires. And sometimes those empires battled each other, and Israel was caught in between. But eventually, Israel came under the control of the Greeks and ultimately became a vassal state of the Roman Empire in about 63 BC. Now, the Roman Empire spread far and wide, and so they had to be incredibly organized to manage it. So the first thing they would do when they conquered territory is they would put in infrastructure, roads and bridges and fortresses. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Romania, and we toured an ancient Roman fortress. And the archaeologists had dug down to the place where you could see the bricks that were laid by the Roman soldiers, and they were still in good shape. 
And so for the Romans to come in, on one hand, meant you losing your freedom and having your taxes raised astronomically. But on the other hand, they had good roads. And so they would build roads and aqueducts and, and bridges. And they managed all of this through a very strict political structure. Now, you know the main reason that the Romans conquered territory is they wanted revenue from those territories to funnel back into Rome so that they could have their games and their bread. And this was the case with Israel. They put in place a puppet government. They would often put together local officials who had a tie to the natives there. But the real power, of course, was the Roman military. And the Roman military, and they had outposts all over the world, had divisions. And the basic division in the Roman military was the legion, which consisted of about 6,000 Roman soldiers. And those 6,000 soldiers in a legion were further subdivided into groups of 100 called centuries. And each of those centuries had a leader called a centurion. And this man was one of those centurions. Centurions were well compensated. They had a place of honor and respect in the Roman world. They were appointed to this office most often by virtue of their uh, ability and bravery in battle and because of their fierce loyalty to Rome. There are seven centurions that are mentioned in the New Testament. And in each case, they are presented, presented positively. Many of you are familiar with a centurion who stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus died and uttered these words, surely this was the Son of God. The first centurion mentioned in the New Testament is the one here in Matthew chapter 7. And I believe there are some wonderful things we can learn about this centurion and from this centurion. Now we learn some facts about him in just the first few verses here in chapter 7. In fact, verse 1 says, he was stationed in the village of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was the adopted hometown of Jesus. Now, he grew up in the village of Nazareth. But what Jesus said about Nazareth is the prophet's not without honor except in his own hometown. And so his base of operations was this village of Capernaum. And he kept coming back there after his, um, he would go out to the different parts of Israel. This man lived there on the Sea of Galilee. He was probably stationed there with a few other Roman soldiers. He was a man of means. He had some wealth. We know that because it says he owned slaves, and only the wealthy could own slaves. And it says that it was with his own money that he had constructed the local house of worship for the Jewish people, and they had come to admire him and respect him because of that. He had a good reputation, in other words, in the community. Now, don't gloss over that. That is extremely rare for a Roman centurion to have a good reputation among the local Jews. They tended to despise and hate the fact that they represented their oppressors and oppression. But occasionally you would have find some that treated the people so well and were sympathetic to their plight that uh, they were commended. And he is one of those. And somehow he had heard about the Lord Jesus. By this time Jesus had been ministering for some time and his fame had spread to the point where he's got a large group of people following around wherever he's going. And apparently this Gentile centurion had uh, heard about it. Now, how did he hear about it? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I have a clue, though. If you'll turn over to John chapter 4, just a few pages forward in, in your Bible, to John's Gospel. Verse 46 of John chapter 4 tells about a nobleman, an official of the city of Capernaum, whose child was healed by Jesus. 
John 4:46. Speaking of Jesus, then he went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. Remember, that was the site of Jesus' first miracle. And there was a certain royal official whose son was ill in Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, for he was about to die. And Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man departed, what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was going down, his slave met him saying that this boy was alive. He asked him what time he got better. He said, yesterday at seven in the morning, the fever left him. They answered, the father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. Now, I suspect that this nobleman and this centurion knew one another. Capernaum was not a large town, and they were on the same socioeconomic strata. And likely, he said, hey, this man healed my son. I bet he can heal your slave as well. And so now we come back to uh, Luke chapter 7. This man had heard about Jesus, and he had great faith. We know that because Jesus, the Scripture says, was amazed by his faith. And it's hard for me to fathom that Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, would be amazed about anything. Now don't take that He was surprised, but He in His humanity was amazed. And there are another place in the Bible that say Jesus was amazed about certain people. Often it's because of their lack of faith. But there's twice in the New Testament, here a man and once a woman, that He was amazed by their faith. So what can we learn about Christianity, about following Christ from this man. Well, the first thing is how to think rightly in difficult days. This man was going through a difficult day. He said that this was a slave that he greatly valued. He loved him. In fact, the Greek construction indicates this is a small boy, someone he was affectionate towards, and he didn't want to see him die. And so it was a difficult day, but he had the right attitude and the right thoughts for difficult days. Now, in a wider perspective, all of us are living in difficult days. On an individual level, anytime we gather in this room, as I look out, I see people who have cancer. I see people who have children who have rebelled. I see people who have every problem on the spectrum. And, and that's why we need one another. We need to come here, love one another, be equipped by the Word, and support one another. But in an even wider perspective, this world is a difficult place to live, isn't it? These are difficult days. We are living in the last days. The last days are the time from Christ's ascension to the time that He returns. And we are told that in the last days, it's not going to be great. In fact, if you're depressed about how bad things are going, cheer up, it's going to get worse. <laughs> Matthew chapter 4, Jesus came out from the temple, was going away, when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, and he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no man misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes, 
But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And when they deliver you to tribulation, kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name, at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Friends, we're living in the last days. And these are difficult days and they're going to get worse. So saints, Christians living in the last days need to think clearly and rightly. And I believe this centurion can help us do that. Three ways. One, right thinking about Jesus. Then right thinking about ourselves. And finally, right thinking about others. First of all, right thinking about Jesus. Now you're aware that people have all sorts of thoughts about Jesus. Let me give you three popular thoughts about Jesus. One is that he's a cosmic peace child. You've seen the pictures of Jesus uh, looking like he just came off the Haight-Asbury district in San Francisco in 1967, holding up a peace sign, wearing a peace symbol around his neck. Uh, That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus of the Bible said he came to seek and save the lost, to die for sinners. And some believe that Jesus was a good man, but a prophet sent by God. There are over one billion, with a B, Muslims in the world who believe that, and many millions of others. And then there's a third group that believe Jesus was a misunderstood political martyr, that somehow he uh, tried to foment a rebellion and the Romans put it down and had him put to death. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. But there was a lot of speculation about who Jesus was in his own day. Matthew 16, 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now the Catholic Church would have you believe that the rock upon which Jesus built the church was Simon Peter. But if you read Peter's story in the book of Acts, he was anything but a rock. He waffled. He uh, was fragile. The rock upon which Jesus built the church is Peter's confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the fundamental truth of the gospel. It's who Jesus is, the promised Messiah, God in the flesh. And I believe this is what the centurion believed. He appears not to be confused at all about the authority that Jesus has. First of all, he calls him Lord. Now that was more than just a a term of respect. After all, get the picture. Here's a centurion who has authority. And here's a man from... The public's perspective is the poor son of a carpenter from another town. And yet the centurion calls him Lord. And he recognizes authority. Remember what he said, Lord, I understand authority. I'm a centurion. I tell my soldiers to jump and they say, how high? I tell my servants to come, they come or do something and it's done. And he says, I recognize you have that authority over sickness and death. Now only God has that kind of authority. And so he recognized his his deity. Now there's an irony here and it's sad. 
the Jewish leaders that came to Jesus on behalf of this man had all the Old Testament, unlike this Gentile, and yet they failed to see the authority that Jesus had. They did not recognize him as Lord. In fact, Matthew eleven twenty three, the harshest criticism Jesus ever, ever leveled was for the religious leaders of Capernaum. Listen, and you Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. See, Jesus' headquarters is in Capernaum. That's where he did some of his greatest miracles. And those who should have recognized him refused to believe. Jesus said it would be more tolerable judgment day for Sodom and Gomorrah than you people. Matthew 8, 11. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those were the patriarchs of Israel in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, that is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will be cast out into outer darkness. Here's a Gentile coming from the outside, recognizing Jesus, putting his faith and trust in Christ, repenting of sin and being saved. And the people who knew all about the Messiah, prophetically speaking, denying Jesus. Now, a couple of things to note here. It is not enough to admire Jesus. Katie mentioned a friend of hers she's praying for. She admires Jesus. She reads about him, knows all about him, but she has not submitted to his lordship. It's not enough to admire Jesus. It's not enough to believe the historical facts about Jesus. The demons believe the historical facts about Jesus. They do not submit to his lordship. You must submit to the authority of Jesus Christ over your life. In other words, to be saved, you have to come to Jesus on his terms, which are empty-handed, pockets outturned. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's how to think rightly about Jesus. Now, secondly, this man helps us to think rightly about ourselves. Now, if there's ever been a culture that likes to think about themselves, it is ours. The advent of social media has let slip the dogs of our collective narcissism. I spent all week on that sentence. You didn't laugh. <laughs> we like to tell each other through pictures what we're eating, where we're going, who we're with, our vacations. Reminds me of a story I heard about two people who were having a conversation, but it was a one-sided conversation. One person was doing all the talking, and they were talking about themselves, as people tend to do. And about 15 minutes into the conversation, the other person lost interest. And the person doing all the talking noticed that, and so to draw them back in, she said, well, that's enough talk about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? But the centurion was not like that. He, he had a right thought about himself. And, and hear it when I read it, because it's so antithetical to what our culture says we should think about ourselves. Many people would put him into therapy right away. Now, Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof for this reason. I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. He says, I'm not worthy. If you don't recognize that, that's something called humility. 
And the world and the culture and our church and all churches are in dire need of more of it. In fact, it is impossible to be saved without it. The only way to be saved is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now, his humility is seen not only in what he said, I'm not worthy, but it's also seen in what he did not say. Remember, this is a powerful man. He did not say, I command you to come to my house and heal my servant. Now, he had the authority to do that, technically speaking. Now, you know, Jesus said, if someone requests you go a mile and carry their pack, what should you do? Go two. Now, the little church I pastored in Mississippi was on the Natchez Trace, which is a federal parkway. And on the Natchez Trace, there is a mile marker every mile, a little monument. And our church was on mile marker 182 between Tupelo and Jackson. And I often noted those mile markers. And that was something that we learned from the Roman Empire. Remember I told you they built roads and bridges? And when they built the roads, they would put up mile markers. And it was a law that when a Roman soldier requested someone in occupied territory to carry his load for a mile, they had to do it. And so Jesus says, if someone asks you to go one mile, go two, that had political implications. And so he could have likely said, I command you, Jew, to come to my house, a Roman centurion, and heal my servant, but he didn't do that. He did not say, you owe me one. Because that was the grounds that his Jewish friends came to Jesus with hey, you need to go because we owe him one. He built us a synagogue. And he did not say, I will pay you whatever you want, though he was a wealthy man. He came to Jesus on Jesus' terms. And that's the only way any person can come to Jesus to be saved, on his terms, based on Jesus' power to save and his willingness to save. Do you believe that our God is powerful to save he is. That's why we can go out with boldness into this community and tell people, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved because we believe he's powerful enough to save any sinner. But then also we must believe that he is willing to save. And he is. He says so. So much so that he died on the cross for sinners such as us. And so this is, these are the grounds upon which the centurion came. Jesus' power to save and his willingness to save. So he, he thought rightly about himself. But thirdly, when we have a right thought about Jesus, we have the right thoughts about ourselves, it will lead us to think rightly about other people. Look at uh, verse 1, chapter 7. When he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of people, he entered Capernaum, a centurion slave who was highly valued by him. Now we could read that a lot of different ways. Some people valued their slaves because they were hard workers and could make them money. That's not the indication here. This is a feeling of love and sympathy. Now, a lot of people have, have read the New Testament and seen its many references to Roman slavery and been turned off by that and said, well, I'm more humane than, than Jesus because Jesus didn't end the institution of slavery while he was on earth. No, he did not. He could have. He chose not to because that was not his mission. Jesus said, I have come to seek and save those who are lost. Now, thankfully, through the centuries in most nations, the institution of slavery has been abolished, by the way, primarily through the influence of the church and through Christians. 
But that was not the purpose of Jesus or the Apostle Paul. They were just recognizing that was the case. Did you know at certain points in the Roman Empire, there were more slaves than there were free people. And so his purpose was not to end slavery. He was just recognizing this man had a slave and he loved him. And he had high regard for him. That's how Christians are to think of other people. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. This would end all marital strife. This would end all strife within churches. This would end strife of all kinds if everyone practiced do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. You can't do that in your own power. That's unnatural. We are born into the world selfish individuals. Only by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit can we truly put others ahead of ourselves. In fact, this was the theme of Jesus teaching to his disciples for three and a half years. The least will be greatest, and the greatest the least. If you want to be the greatest, be the greatest servant. And so we see this in this man, first of all, that he was compassionate. Compassion has to deal with how you feel. In fact, in the Greek, it has to do with your insides. It has to do with your gut, how you feel. But as we said a couple of weeks ago, it's not enough to have a feeling about someone's circumstances unless we take action. And that's where kindness comes in. Kindness is compassion put to feet. Kindness is compassion in action. Jesus was often moved with compassion over people who were sick or hurting or dying or lost a loved one, who were even hungry. He was moved with compassion about 5,000 people who hadn't eaten since breakfast. And he did something about it. He fed them. He healed them. He, he raised the dead. Friends, we live in a world full of lost people. And without Christ, they are hopeless and helpless and will die in their sins and spend eternity in hell unless someone tells them about Jesus. That is the means that God in His sovereignty has chosen to perpetuate the gospel. That those who have been saved tell others who have yet to be saved, and when they're saved, they tell yet others. Paul told Timothy to instruct this message to faithful men who would in turn entrust it to faithful men. That's how the gospel has been passed down from generation to generation, from nation to nation. 270 of you have signed up, as I said, for the evangelism class. By the way, I, pr I prayed for 40, which tells you how much faith I have. But as we think about evangelism, we, we must think of this in terms of the lost. We're doing this not so we can get a, a merit badge. We're doing this so we can be equipped to go out into a lost and dying world and tell the good news, to display kindness to them. You see, I'm convinced that the kindest thing anyone could do for a lost person is tell them about Jesus. It's one thing to pass them on the street and in our cars and in traffic and at the mall and at work and go, boy, feel bad for those people. They don't know Jesus. Kindness is compassion and action. But before we take action, we must think rightly because these are indeed 
difficult days. First of all, we have to think rightly about Jesus. We have to know who he is. You see, the, the essence of idolatry is not cutting down a tree and making a statue and bowing down to it, offering sacrifices. Now, that's idolatry. That's very rare. What is not rare at all is believing and espousing things about Jesus that aren't true. That's the essence of idolatry. And when people say Jesus is a cosmic peace child, or Jesus was a prophet but just a man, or if people say Jesus was a political martyr that was misunderstood, that is idolatry because that's not true. Jesus is God in the flesh who left the glories of heaven to take on a human body, to live a perfect sinless life, to die on a cross for sinners such as us so that he would be resurrected on the third day, victorious over death in the grave. And he offers salvation to all who put their faith and trust in him. That's how to think rightly about Jesus. He calls you to submit to his lordship through repentance and faith. And then we think rightly about Jesus, then we have to think rightly about ourselves. We're not a peer of Jesus. We're not a lesser emanation of Jesus as some of the cults teach. We are lost without him. We are born into this world rebels against him. And had he not intervened and sent someone to tell us the truth, we would have surely died without him. And so that leads to humility. And when you're humble, you think rightly about other people. Because when you see people who are saying things that are directly opposed to the Bible, where they're living lifestyles that God calls sinful, sometimes that makes us angry. And there is such thing as righteous indignation. But many times we get angry because we have the expectation that lost people act like saved people. Lost people act like lost people because they're lost people. Now we have every right and should expect one another, professing Christians in the local church to behave like saved people. But don't expect lost people to act like saved people. And so when we have a right view of ourselves, it makes us humble and we see people as potential trophies of God's grace, not obstacles to our cultural happiness. So I call upon us today, let's Let's, yes, be compassionate for the lost. Let's feel for them, but let's put that compassion into action through kindness. The kindest thing we can do is tell everyone we know the gospel. Let's pray that the Lord would help us do that. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. And here's a man, a centurion, whose name is not even mentioned. You know him. You've known him before the foundation of the world, and you have used him for 2,000 years to teach us. Lord, you've taught us today how to think rightly about Jesus and rightly about ourselves and rightly about other people. We thank you for that. We pray now that you would embolden us by your spirit to put that knowledge now into action as we go out Monday morning to our schools and to our places of employment, our place of recreation, shopping centers. Lord, may Jesus be on our lips and in our heart that he may be glorified as we tell the good news. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, 
visit us online at fbckeller.org.